All right, we're going to begin this evening with a word of prayer tonight, and then we'll be singing a few songs together. If you need tonight's lesson sheet, they're there back at the Welcome Center, and uh, make sure you have, it'll say Lesson 3 at the top of it, have today's date on the front of it, and then, uh, or you can pull those up if you're watching online, or you would rather pull it up on your device, you can do so if you go to our website to the Connect page and choose uh, today's sermon notes, and you can find those, <clears throat> make sure that we have those as we look in toward Esther chapter 3 in just a little while. Lord, we are so thankful that uh, we can gather together and uh, be called your people, uh, that we can not just by uh, what we are, <clears throat> where we're from or uh, what we like or what our interests are or our families or heritage or nationality or anything else that uh, the world may look at and, and use to define a person. Uh, we have the greatest description that we are your children, we belong to you. And as we look to that in your word tonight, we ask that you would guide and direct and give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to grow to become more like you as we learn of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's... Amen. Find your place tonight in the book of Esther, chapter number 3. As you're finding your place there, I'll tell you a funny story from just the last little bit. Uh, we have a lot of people going through different things in our church and church ministry and <clears throat> been following up with a number the last uh, few days and checking on people. Some that are going through some difficult times, some good things but stressful, some illness also as well and, and tests and surgeries and a number of things. We're trying to follow up with each of them and Oh, about uh, an hour, just over an hour ago, I got a call, and I had stepped away from my desk, and I missed it, and I had a voicemail, and on the voicemail, nothing could be, it couldn't tell exactly what was being said, but it sounded like something was wrong. I did not have the phone number saved in my contact, so I wasn't sure who the call was from, but it sounded like something was terribly wrong. The call was going in and out, in and out, and I just had this odd sinking feeling, just this pit in my stomach, and, and I was just, man, something does not seem right, so I called back, and called back, and called back, and I uh, kept getting the voicemail, and when I would get the voicemail, it said, leave a message for, and it said a number, and it wasn't the number that I had dialed, which I also thought was odd, I thought, man, I don't, something is wrong, and then just as I sat down a few minutes ago, it popped up that the number had called back and left another voicemail. And so I said, well, I'm going to go check it just in case in case something's wrong with somebody, you know, in the church or it's been uh, trouble or something, health issues, something like that. And I went in through right here and put the phone up to my ear and it was someone wondering if I had been informed of the new tax laws and the zero tax something rather program and uh, if I had enrolled yet and if I wanted to and I promptly hung up the phone and deleted the voicemail. And I feel so much better at this moment <laughs> right now. I have not heard about this program. I would love to pay zero taxes. Unfortunately, I don't think that will be the case. But um, I just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, one of the joys of <clears throat> just wondering sometimes. If you would look at Esther chapter <clears throat> number three tonight, and we're going to be walking our way through the chapter actually a, a little different tonight than <clears throat> we've even 
studied in the last couple weeks, you know that we're walking through the book of Esther, and it presents some challenges. And when I use the word challenges, I, I don't mean negative challenges in studying the book. It just, it reads and studies differently than many other books in the Bible. Um, there are books like Romans and First John and Ephesians, Colossians, where it is rich doctrinal truth in sometimes laid out in a systematic way. It very clearly introduces and says, this is what you're learning and here's what we're going to tell you. And then when he finishes, he, he kind of rehashes that and goes back through it. And then there's other narrative books, especially in the New Testament. You have uh, the gospel accounts, the book of Acts that tell us of Jesus' ministry, the early days of the church and how they acted out Jesus' mission. And then you can go to the Old Testament and you have a variety of genres there. You have poetry like the Psalms and in parts of Job and uh, Proverbs where the message is very clearly about the Lord, but it's written in poetic form and it has deep implications with it, but it also is very illustrative language. You have others that are uh, uh, accounts of historical events and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. You have the early portions of the Old Testament that include a little bit of both narrative, but also God's law and character being displayed. And it's very clear, here's how you should study this. You minor prophets, major prophets that have a little, a few more layers to them because you're dealing with poetic language sometimes. You're dealing with men that are preaching. You're dealing with a message that's preached to an original audience, but about the Messiah and about the Lord, then that still applies, of course, to us. Esther is very different, and we've talked about that the last few weeks. There are no large doctrinal sections. In fact, there are none in the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther includes no prophecy, no direct prophecy about anything that is coming from the Lord. In fact, it doesn't really even include for us the stories or the accounts of people living out their faith for God in an outward, clear, and evident way. We're going to see that as we walk through the book. And it doesn't even include the name of God. Yet, it is God's handiwork in all over his people and their protection and their saving. And so why are we studying the book? We won't rehash all of that, but for the first two weeks we've been establishing, we're studying this because... Unlike some other portions of Scripture, like Daniel, where it is very clear and obvious God is sending visions to some of his servants and dreams, and uh, he's letting them know, speaking directly to them. He, <clears throat> there's outward displays of great faith, even though they are far away from their homeland, the land that God had given them as a people. There's prophecy involved. It just is glaring everywhere. Why are we studying this? Because in, there's moments in life that God is very obvious and evident in us and to us. And then there's other moments in life that God, for us, he is not absent, but for us, we would perceive him as absent or not active in our lives. And the book of Esther laid out beside other portions of Scripture reveals to us that even when we perceive that God is absent or inactive, that he is actually fully in control and that he reigns and rules over every aspect of our life. And so we've been kind of laying the groundwork and in introduction in the first couple chapters. The first two chapters don't really advance the storyline to the main core of the book of Esther, which is all of God's people, all of those that are called in that day and age Jews, which was more than simply, I am Jewish descent. It was, I believe in Yahweh. I believe in this 
God who has revealed himself through these particular people. And he says, all of these are going to be killed. They're all going to have a death sentence. They're going to eradicate these group of, this group of people from the earth. A bad thing, not just because of the horror and the terror and the murder that's going to be involved. Those are all bad, yes. But more than that, God had promised very early in Scripture, in Genesis 3, in verse 15 and 16, He promised to Abraham, to the early fathers of Israel, He promised to David, through a certain group of people, I'm going to let you know this is where the Messiah is coming from. He will come, he will be perfect, he is fully God, fully man, and he will save people from their sins, restore relationship with God, and allow an opportunity for mankind to dwell eternally with their creator. So if this happens, all of God's promises will fail. And it seems dramatic when we say that, but in essence, if what they are trying to do here happens, it's an end of God's promise. So not only is it God showing his power, it is God keeping his promise. And we're going to start into that storyline tonight in chapter 3. Now, I, I thought about targeting it, going through chapter 3 into chapter 4 because they carry one right into the next. I think we could do chapter 3 justice in the time that we have, but unfortunately, I don't think we would do justice to chapter 4 if we tried to add it on. So we're only going to look at chapter <clears throat> 3 this evening which is really just going to be setting us up to see how and why God is going to work through his people. And so we're not going to advance the storyline much further tonight in terms of God reconciling or God reversing this, uh, this order of death on his people. In fact, we're just going to sort of introduce it to us. But I want us to take a few minutes tonight, and you see there your title is deep and wide. I know it has nothing to do with the children's song that you might sing about God's love for us. It's, it's not talking about that. It is talking about that the, the seeds of hatred in the life of a person and the seeds of bitterness in a person's heart can spread, can go deep and also spread wide. And we're going to see that all of this that came about in this declaration of war, if you would, on God's people it's actually rooted much deeper than even just chapter 3. It's rooted deeper than just the people on the history of the peoples that are involved. It's all the way back to even the beginnings of God's word in that as God works in people's hearts and they become his, that Satan then, or evil, works against God's people because he works against God. And we're going to see that even tonight and that one of the ways that that happens is through hatred and bitterness. Uh, amongst individuals and people groups as well. Look at me with Esther chapter 3, <clears throat> verse number 1. It says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Now, you may hear me say names differently each week. Um, I'm a sinner and double-minded and unstable in all my ways. Sometimes when it comes to these names, I can't completely say, because you're dealing with a lot of elements. You're dealing with a book that is uh, rooted in Jewish history, that is in an Old Testament that was a, written in Hebrew at different points, transliterated into Greek and now put into English. And so names can have different pronunciations. There's no one guide to it. And so sometimes it's just the way I feel at the moment. So Hamadatha, the Agagite, or if you would say the Agagite, the Agagite, and it advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. 
And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. For Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence him. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou against the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they had daily when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw the Morde- saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Why? For they had showed him. The people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is, the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, he explains what that is, it's the lot, it's an old Babylonian term for a type of dice. So, so they cast those before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them, to leave them here. If it please the king, let it be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And it's interesting from here and a number of portions of the rest of the book that that is what Haman is now titled as, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said unto Haman, the silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on in the thirteenth day of the first month, And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof. And to every people after their language in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces. Notice the threefold mention here. To destroy, to kill, to cause to perish all Jews both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for prey. A copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city Shushan, or Susa, was perplexed. Lord, give us wisdom as we look to your word. A difficult passage to swallow and read tonight that humankind is possible of this type of evil. And so we ask that you give us the right mindset toward it. Give us your mind and your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Needed a new queen. So he sends out a log that goes out to all these regions, 127 provinces from northwest India down into Ethiopia, all the way over to Greece. Huge chunk of land, and it says, send all your unmarried ladies. Now, we know it's not saying literally every single one, but he's saying of the best of them, you decide and bring them in 
And he says he's going to start this process by which he's going to choose his new queen. And we read last week that there's indication that he actually, if you would say, I use the word Mary loosely, married all of them as they would come in and be introduced to them. He made them, the Bible uses the word, he made them concubines. And just an awful, awful circumstance for any young lady to face. And then let alone Esther, and now she has chosen to be queen. She pleases the king, and he finds her attractive and whatever else he decides, and so he makes her the queen. And in making her the queen, uh, that brings about a whole different type of life for her, and not a good one. Uh, he didn't magically become Prince Charming. We're going to read and follow on throughout the book. He stayed an evil man. He, he was lousy as a ruler and as an individual, and so now she's living in this dark relationship. And we're thinking, if she is part of the children of God, how could this happen? And we talked a little bit about that last week. Well, now the story gets even darker. And just a quick summary of what we just read in chapter number three. What in the world is happening? We have, you have these two main people that are mentioned. You have Ahasuerus, but ironically, he's the king of the empire. He's the more one of the most is the most powerful man in the world at this point in history. And actually, he's sort of a side note. He's just the guy that's there and involved. He has authority. He has power. But eventually, he ends up giving it away. The two main people that you have mentioned here are Haman and Mordecai. You have Haman, who this raises up to this level of what we kind of consider the prime minister for the king. He was helping rule over all the provinces, so the king didn't have to mess with most of it. And so he's ruling probably the second most powerful man in the world at that point. And so there's this decree made that as he comes through the king's gate. Now, the king's gate, you're picturing maybe a, a gate to a city or an actual wooden gate to a fortress. The king's gate would literally be the entryway to his palace. We know that the uh, to, to his inner place of government, really, not just a, a palace. And we talked about a little bit last week that uh, historically it is said that the one that was in Susa, the King's Gate in Susa, it was about 130, 131 feet wide, about 91 feet long. For reference, this building is about, if you went from corner to back corner in the prayer room, it's about 100 by 100. And so you're looking at about the size of this room, extended a little bit, a few feet on each <clears throat> side. So not, not a huge area. It's not massive. And it's told there's kind of two halls on each side of that king's gate. There was one that they would walk through. And then as you were waiting to do business with the king, some would come in and stand and, and wait to have a, a, a conference, if you would call it that, with the king. And then there were those that were there that were the king's servants, sort of his wise rulers that would hear those and sort of filter down what actually needed to be brought to the king or not. Mordecai is actually one of those men. Though he is Jewish by his nationality and ethnicity, he has found his way somehow into the servanthood of the king. And so he is there, and they would be sit, seating in, seated in the gate listening to these. And so every day when Haman comes in, everyone that was in that king's gate was supposed to bow down to him. Because other than the king, no one is more powerful than Haman. So as he would come down that center hall, he wasn't messing with the people that were there to gain an audience with the king that was left for the other servants. He was sort of the main man of the kingdom. And so as he would come through, everyone would have to bow. Mordecai would not do it. The Bible doesn't really tell us exactly why that is. We're going to check into some things that are alluded to here in the chapter, but that doesn't happen. He actually doesn't do it for quite a while. But Haman doesn't notice. 
evidently. He doesn't see it. And so other rulers that are there in Mordecai's position, they say, you better do this or you're going to be in trouble. You've got to do it. And it says that Mordecai heard them, but he would not relent. He would not bow. He would not even pay reverence to Haman for some reason. And so as they go about their duties, they eventually go to Haman because they don't probably want to be ones that are like, yeah, we knew this bad thing was happening and we didn't come to you about it. So they go to Haman, they tell him about it because they want to see if it's going to be upheld or not. And so they go and they tell Haman. Haman is furious with uh, Mordecai and, in fact, furious with all of his people. And he makes this plan to kill not just Mordecai, but anyone of the same ethnicity and, and nationality as Mordecai. And think about the scope of this. They are spread. The people that were the people of Israel have been taken exile hundreds of years before, just over 100 years before. And they've been scattered all over the known world at that time, from India to Ethiopia, Greece, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, all of these, uh, Kazakhstan, Kurdistan, Pakistan, huge chunk of area. And he says, across this entire kingdom, we're going to set a day and kill everyone that is from this ethnicity or from this line and from this nation. You see, this is awful. And notice even how it's being carried out. A, a law is set to the people of these kingdoms. It's not, we're going to come to your town with our army and, and kill all these people, like, uh, like Herod when he sent soldiers to kill everyone two and under, all boys two and under at the time, around the time Jesus was born. It wasn't like that. It's sent out in a decree to all the provinces and says, if you're living in this region, this place, this city, this town, this village, and there is anyone of Jewish descent on such and such a day, you can rise up, you are commanded to rise up, go to their place or their house, murder them, and as a reward, you can have all their stuff. Can you imagine for a moment? Like imagine, it's hard to even fathom, but in our day or in America, that some reason you go home tonight and there's a group of people that are bound by something, just call it anything. And there, here it was an ethnic type of, root to it it could be a religious root to it. it could be a business root to it i mean anything you you name it just imagine a people group that is bound by a certain thing and on tv tonight on the news or comes up on your phone in an alert there's a law out and it's about a year out in advance it says next december i'm going to make it it's actually we'll talk about it a little bit in a moment it was the day before the jewish passover that wasn't on purpose it's barely even mentioned here but we're going to See it a little bit later. So let's just say it's a festive time. Christmas Eve next year. If anyone in your neighborhood falls into this category, by law, your neighbor, you have to get together, murder, kill those people. You can have anything that's in their house, their possessions. You can have that as your reward. It's hard to even fathom that. It's not carried out by authorities. It's by the people. Remember I mentioned, it's not, it's not a kid's story. It's, it's deep and it is dark. And so what spurs this on? And that's really our goal tonight for a few minutes. Where did this hatred come from? How can we see it even today amongst ourselves and amongst in the world? And then how is God going to handle it? Unfortunately, we're not going to get to that part until next week. But we're just going to try to be faithful to the text tonight and, and see what it is that the Lord is teaching us. So I want you to notice that number one, it's an ancient and enduring hatred. And the bulk of our time tonight is going to be spent in this portion of the scripture and on this portion of what details 
we have because it's easy to overlook what the writer wants us to take note of about the conflict. If this would have been very obvious to all the original readers as they're reading through and it tells us who Haman is and it has told us in chapter 2 who Mordecai is, anyone reading this would have known very quickly. For instance, it would be the equivalent of, I'm, I'm trying to picture it today and I, and I use this illustration loosely because I know that today there is not an animosity between these two nations and people. But let's, let's, let's go back, let's say, I don't know, 45, 50 years ago or so, and we're telling a story about two men who were embittered toward each other, and they worked together, because in essence that's what Haman and Mordecai do. This man was a German man, and this man was a Jew. To us, in our context, in our day, it would be very quick. It would be immediate in our mind if we go back about 50 years. It would be so obvious what, what part of the root issue is going to be. And that happens in Scripture, but if we kind of just roll through it, we won't notice it. And so I want to do, do some diligence and, and give some time to this. Well, notice, if you would, the history behind this. It tells us of the people involved. And notice, don't blow through the names. Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Notice this, the Agagite. Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Smimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So what do we know about these two? Turn, if you would, very quickly, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. It's important. Don't, uh, if history is not your thing, don't um, tune out here because this is an important aspect of being able to understand the book of Esther, which is part of God's word to us, which he has told us to study diligently. So, Pay close attention. First Samuel chapter 2 tells us of Saul. Now we know that Mordecai, back in chapter number 2, it tells us Mordecai tells us some of his ancestors. It ultimately goes back to son of Kish, who was a Benjamite, which was of the tribe of Benjamin. So you're there in First Samuel chapter 15. Look, if you would, in verse number 2. Verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou to the voice of the words of the Lord. Saul becomes the first human king of Israel, right? And he says, listen to God's command. What is God's command to Saul? Verse 2, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way, and when he came up from Egypt, when he came up from Egypt, now go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that, have, all that they have, and spare them not, but both slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Saul gathered the people together. We won't read the rest of uh, the text, but we know that this is the account in which Saul becomes, and he's driving out the enemies out of the land, and there's this one particular people that God gives, and this is a difficult thing sometimes for us to wrap our heads around. God's instruction to his people is, you're going to have to destroy everything about this people that are in your land. But there is a reason why, and it points us to it. Look, if you would, back at Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. <clears throat> Exodus 17, look at verse number 8. So the people of Israel have come up out of Egypt. They've just been set free from bondage. They're going through the wilderness. They're headed to the promised land that God says, this is going to be my people not because he loved them more than everyone else in the world, not because they did anything great or special. Simply, this is where the Savior of all men are going to, is going to come from. 
So I'm going to get them to this land and establish this for them so it will be obvious when the Messiah comes is from these people. That's the goal. So he's leading them back that way. In verse number 8, what happens? Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose out us men and go fight with Amalek. To, uh, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And we know that this is a, a familiar story to us that he holds his hands up and Israel prevails over the Amalekites and then his hands droop in, in that time period in, in a way of God's power and it kind of goes away and they begin to be defeated and men come up and lift up Moses' hands. God gives them a great victory, but it's not a battle that God really instructed them to have. The Amalekites came trying to defeat this huge group of exiles that were trying to get home, taking advantage of their situation, trying to destroy them. And yet they fight them off and drive them back. Well, where do they go? They go back into the land where Israel is headed toward. Now, if you still have your place in 1 Samuel 15, we will look there at one other verse, 1 Samuel 15. So God gives this command to destroy the Amalekites. Why? Because they once tried to destroy his people. And there's bitterness and animosity. And God knows if his people move into this land, there's going to be war after war after war. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people will die throughout all the years because these two groups of people will never be able to get along. And so God, remembering the sin that they committed, says that they are to be destroyed. And now notice, if you would, 1 Samuel 15. Look at verse number 13. It says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of sheep that are in my ears, this lowing of oxen which I have heard? And Saul said, They have brought them to me from the Amalekites. He, said, he says, They've brought these things. So he's already not obeyed in that he has spared. He has been told to utterly destroy them. Look at verse number 20. Saul said to Samuel, Yeah, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought, notice this phrase, have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, which we know also was not true. There were many left that had scattered throughout. But notice that phrase, Agag, king of the Amalekites. Well, Agag's descendants were known as Agagites, Agagites, of whom Haman descends. Haman is an Amalekite particularly of the line of Agag. Now, what happens to Agag? He is spared initially by Saul, which was sin, because God had commanded them to drive them out and to kill them. Then in verse number 32, then Samuel said, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, So Agag says, I'm going to live. They're, they're not angry with me. Samuel says, as thy sword hath made women childless. This is the type of man that Agag was. So shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. A violent end to an evil king who Haman comes from. There's actually another uh, account. We won't read it in First Chronicles chapter 4 where uh, people of Israel, there's a pocket of Amalekites living. The people of Israel get into battle with them again, and most of the rest of them are killed and scattered. Yet now, we are not a decade away. We are not two decades away. We're, we're closing in on a thousand years since 
uh, the Amalekites and the Israelites have been at odds with each other. We're closing in about 500 years since Agag, the great king of the Amalekites, was taken and in the Amalekites' eyes murdered by these people that believe in this God. And so Haman comes from that. And do you see what the writer is trying to help us see? He's trying to tell us these two groups of people that have hated each other for a very long time. And you have two men of descendants, both of them descendants of kings from these. Haman from Agag and ultimately Mordecai from Kish, which was the father of Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul's probably not mentioned there because he was an outcast king eventually. So you have two descendants of two kings of two embittered nations against each other living 500 years later in a different kingdom but in positions of power this is not the kind of thing that is let go though because these accounts have been passed down amongst israelites amongst the malachites they know who each other are and when they find out that one is from one descendant to the other there is hatred and there is bitterness between them and so there is no wonder that as we get to verse number two notice so now we've seen the history. Notice what act brought Haman's attention to it, to this hatred. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed in reverence Haman. The king so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence him. Now let me say very quickly, there is no word in this that gives any inclination of God worship. Uh, bowing is kneeling, reverencing. There's, there's cultures throughout all of history that have bowed or nodded, curtsied, kneeled in a way just to show reverence. There's nothing here that indicates that the command was to worship Haman as a god. In fact, it would not have been that way because the emperor would have been viewed in that way. And it's not to say that Mordecai didn't have some faith-based or religious-based reason for not bowing, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. Now, Another interesting thing about the text, it does not condemn or condone Mordecai's actions. It's, it's important to note. Because you can steer off the whole wrong way with this and say that Mordecai was living great faith. He would not bow to anyone but his God. The text doesn't say that. You could also say Mordecai put all of God's people in danger because he did not recognize the God-ordained authority in his life at that moment. Remember Jeremiah in chapter 29 tells them to seek the peace as exiles, seek the peace of where you're living, even though it's not your homeland. We know as we read in other portions of scripture, Romans chapter 13 tells us very quickly that the, clearly the powers that be are ordained of God. And unless those ordained powers contradict God's command, then you are to follow those commands. And so some you would say, you know, Mordecai put them in danger because he was not respectful of those that have been put in authority. Text doesn't tell us that either. So what are we to think about Mordecai? That he didn't bow. That's all it tells us. Notice verse number three. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why transgressest thou against thou the king's commandment? So very clearly they viewed it as disobedience. Verse four. Now it came to pass when they spake unto him daily, spake, spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them. So he had a chance that they told Haman, see whether Mordecai's matter would stand before he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, I think that's the only hint in all of the chapter as to why Mordecai did what he did. Because they're coming to him every day saying, you've got to bow down to this man. You must bow down to him. The king's command is if you do not bow down, you will face punishment, even death. 
And Mordecai, the only inclination that Scripture gives us is that Mordecai, in his conversation with him, day after day after day, says, I will not, cannot bow down, I am a Jew. Now, whether he meant that because Haman's an Amalekite or whether he meant it because I kneel to no one but God, it doesn't give us any indication. I think it's a hint there. I can't bow to who he is. And then look at verse number five. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. It's going to become clear to us that the conflict grows from being personal, Mordecai and Haman, to becoming toward a whole people group. And I want you to notice that in verse number five and six because he reacts, he overreacts, and it becomes murderous. Hatred turns into murderous desires. Hatred and murder, lying and murder, are, are always very closely associated in Scripture. And we're going to see that because Haman was angered by Mordecai's rebellion. But notice he is moved when he learns who Mordecai is. He's enraged at the act of disobedience. But he is incensed when he finds out why. Notice if you would in verse number 6. He, sought, he thought scorn to lay hands. It's not worth laying hands on Mordecai alone. Notice this phrase, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. They told Mordecai, this guy's a Jew. And when that gets into Haman's mind, everything floods in. I'm an Agagite, Agagite. I'm an Amalekite. He's a Jew. I don't know if he knew he's the son of Kish. He's from a line of kings from even from Israel. It's not enough to kill Mordecai. I must kill them all. You see how hatred and bitterness seeps in and it grows it just grows and snowballs from one thing to the next and and what started as simply a, a, a disgruntlement grows into genocide because sin rarely stays alone or, or rarely stays where it is or the same there's lessons here about both the power of disobedience and bitterness we won't stop there but notice the roots of hostility toward God's people go back all the way to the beginning of mankind in the Bible Cain and Abel. 1 John 3 says that Cain killed Abel because he viewed Abel as more righteous. All throughout the Bible, there is this hatred toward God's people. Now, it's not to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm God's people, so everybody's going to hate me too. No, there's this natural division that happens from people who know the true and living God and love Him and seek to obey Him and people that do not. And it is not something that we should cater towards. It's not something that we should return. It's, it's not an excuse to hate those that are not Christians or that, are not, that do not love God. But ultimately, in Haman, the root of Haman's heart and his hatred was, these people obeyed their God, and I suffered for it, or my people suffered for it. They must also pay. We don't have time tonight to get into all the implications in, in the modern day. You can draw and connect the lines as well. But if you live a life of obedience to your God, it will draw attention from those that do not. And it will not be a good response typically. Now, it does not mean that everyone around you is out to get you and they want to kill you. But people that have been reconciled to their God are different than people that have not. Why? The Bible says that those that are without Christ are at enmity with God. They are enemies, not necessarily always by conscious choice saying, I declare war against the living God, but they are at odds and they are enemies with that God. So not only do they not obey him, but they are enemies with him. So those that obey him and are in love with that God and creator reconciled to him, 
there's always going to be this element of discord between them. Notice, it grows that it's, we won't spend a lot of time, but verse 7, he, he says, he uses this superstitious way. There's a lot that's alluded to here. They cast dice. Notice it says it was cast dice before Haman. It's not like he pulled a pair of dice out of his pocket and he rolled them. This was a very superstitious practice. In fact, they would have hired most likely people to come in, soothsayers as they might have called them. They would have hired people to come in and said, well, here's how we're going to decide. We're going to start rolling the dice. And when whatever the number is of the first dice, that's going to be the day or whatever it may be. Second dice, that's going to be the month. And third dice, that's going to be parts of the year. We're going to, or we're going to exclude them. And they'd bring people in. It was a very superstitious practice because even though Haman does not believe and agree in their God, he has this essence to him that there is some unseen power that controls things. And ironically, there is an unseen power that controls it. God himself controls where the dice fall. And we're going to see that. We, I, that's a teaser. Come back other weeks, and we'll tell you why this is significant. Because the dice fell in a certain way that made it happen on a certain day, that gave them a certain amount of time before a certain time in the year that allowed this to happen in this way specifically. But we'll see. Notice, there's a, his hatred became deceitful. Because he could not just convince everyone else to share his bitterness. This was personal between Haman and the Jews, between Haman and Mordecai. But it wasn't going to be. In fact, we're going to see there's a lot of apathy that the king even has. It's not like the king gets enraged with him. Yeah, this is terrible. It's sort of like the king just decides, whatever, man, you're number two. I got to keep you happy. So here's my ring. You can go do whatever you want. Like He doesn't share the hatred that Haman does. But when we have bitterness in our own hearts, and hatred in our own souls, we have to convince others to share it, don't we? To justify our own hatred and bitterness. We don't want to look foolish. So we convince others to share that hatred with us. And we give our reasoning. And sometimes it may, like Haman's, begin with a truth, then kind of murky half-truth, and then an outright lie. And we as Christians can be guilty of it as well. Notice, what is Haman's devolving... Uh, situation he says to him he says there are people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom that is true their laws are diverse from the people their laws their set of rules that they follow are different than the rest of the people that's also true kind of half true because they follow we're following god's laws that we're going to see later as the text goes on they're also following uh they're also following the laws of the the persians and so notice, he goes on, and then he says, the laws are diverse, neither keep they the king's law. That's where it turns into lie. He says, they don't keep the king's law, therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. In other words, it's, it's for your benefit that they should die, which is also a lie, ironically, because Mordecai is the one that has already saved the king from assassination. <laughs> He's the one that spoiled the assassination plot. It does no good for you to keep these people around. They should all die, especially Mordecai, the one that has already saved you. See, his, his reasoning makes no sense. We know that the people of Israel and even Mordecai followed some of the, the laws that, uh, that, that, that had been given. That's why Esther's the queen. <laughs> they didn't hide her away. They didn't take her somewhere else. When the king made the law, bring the maidens in, bring them into this court, there was some submission to that, and Esther ended up there as well. There's other portions. He's literally employed by the government and knows the law. He is doing these things. So his truth becomes a half-truth, becomes a lie because he's embittered by it. 
sense that sometimes in our own lives. Have you ever tried to share your anger with somebody about something? And when you finish, like they don't seem to get it. Like they're not angry too. Well, maybe, maybe you didn't hear me. Let me tell that to you again. And maybe I'll include some other details. Some of which may be true or might not be true. And then they still don't share our rage with us. And so then we're like, well, yeah, and I also heard this, or I also think that this could happen, or this is going to lead to that. And we just try to broil it as hot as we possibly can because of the bitterness, root of bitterness in our own hearts. It has to spread. It's its very nature. And though we may be able to hide it from others for a while, eventually it creeps into every aspect of our life. So, verse 9, if it please the king, let it be that they may be destroyed. This is interesting. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. Now, I have not done personally all of the research to this and done all the math, but I have a very good study sources and different things on several different ones that say that if you add this up and you take into account the laws and the documents of the Medes and the Persians, 10,000 talents of silver would have been about 60% of the king's tax rate for any given year during that time period, meaning he taxes the whole empire. They bring all that money into the kingdom. What Haman's offering is about 60% of that total. It, I mean, significant. Can you imagine somebody offering to pay 60% of the American tax revenue? That's a fairly significant amount of money. Interestingly enough, the king tells him he can keep it. Notice if he would Verse 11, the king said to Haman, silver is given to thee. It's your silver. Keep it. The people also, that's fine. Keep your authority. To do with them as it seemeth good to thee. He just kind of passes it off. And the emperor of the world takes off his ring, verse 10, gives it to Haman, and then he takes that ring in verse 12, 13, 14, 15, tell us. He goes, he makes a law, he makes it plain, he makes it specific, and spreads this out. And isn't it interesting, sometimes the people that we think are in most control in this world actually have very little. We think Ahasuerus is the big mighty emperor. He's the one. He's being twisted and pulled just like anybody else. But in fact, underneath all of it, God's the one that's in control. And that's the important thing to know here because in these three powerful men, Ahasuerus, the great and mighty powerful, Haman, the very powerful, Mordecai, at least influential in what he's doing. None of them are the ones that are in absolute control. Only the Lord is. But notice, finally, how broad and comprehensive his hatred goes. Because his hatred starts, but it brews from a long time ago. And it's interesting, it didn't even directly affect Haman. And it does show that there can be deep-rooted feelings of abandonment and rage and discouragement and problems and hatred and anger from things that aren't even directly affected our lives that could be historical, that could be whatever it may be between our families or between this person, that person. And we as Christians in the gospel have been called away from all of that. The Bible teaches that we are called, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to teach, your neighbor is even your enemy. So it's not an excuse, they hate us, so we hate them. No, the gospel calls us away from all of that. But hatred can be fueled by anything if we let it sit. And Haman had. 
And then it grew, and it became superstitious. It became a battle. Who's going to win? He becomes deceitful to act on that hatred. And then it eventually, it's so comprehensive. Notice even the way that the order is given. The orders are given to every kind of leader. The order says to kill, destroy, and annihilate them. And I don't think the scribes were just overzealous grammar teachers, and we're just using lots of words that meant the same thing. <clears throat> I think he's saying, look, literally, kill them, maim them, destroy them. And the word there, perish, literally means annihilate them. It's all to be carried on a one day. Those who, can, who obey it can personally plunder it, personally gain from it. The hatred uh, was obviously not shared, though. I want you to notice this that our hatred can spread to others, but it's only by our own doing and work. Notice the end of verse 15. The king of Haman sat down to drink. There's a lot of that in Esther. So they sit down to celebrate. We made a law. Yay, let's celebrate. It hadn't even been carried out yet. But notice the response. In the palace, this was decree was given, verse 15. End of the verse. But the city of Susa, they were confused, baffled perplexed. Why are we going to kill these people? Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. But eventually, 12 months is a long time. And a lot of people jump on board. In fact, you get to the end of the book of Esther, it says more than 75,000 people came to try to kill all of the Jews when the law actually goes into effect. So one man's hatred affects an entire empire. And if we don't think that our bitterness and our disdain for a person, you may think my hatred for that person affects so little in this world. I enjoy it. It almost feels good. It's like tending to a wound that we know is there, but there's some relief almost when it bleeds, when it's not drying out and healing. And Haman looks at the, the people around him, his hatred broils over. And so does ours. And we think we're not affecting somebody, but it affects our kids. It affects our spouse. It affects our family. It affects our church. It affects our friends. And what starts as personal sin spreads rampantly when we allow it to brew over and over and over again. Fortunately, we know the story doesn't end here. We'll come back next week to it. But how do we apply this tonight? Is there bitterness to, in your heart tonight towards someone for some reason? You know, in actuality, the Amalekites and Israelites had existed in the same world for about a thousand years since their first battle. There's really no reason that they shouldn't be able to move past and get along. But the hatred and bitterness of someone's heart, maybe even both, bruise it over and over and over again. Do we have bitterness towards someone? Say, so how do I know? Do we feel vindictive? Not just, not just, ah, don't get along with that person. Vindictive, vengeful, no desire to see that person do well or have a good life. But here's a good measure as a Christian in your heart. And it's easy to say we want someone to be saved and redeemed. But a, a a sign, I'll say it this way, a sign of hatred and bitterness in the heart of a Christian would be a lack of desire to see a person redeemed. And is there someone in your heart tonight 
you've lived however long with. And deep down, if you're really honest with yourself, there is no passion in you to see them saved for God's glory. If the Lord came back tonight, you went to heaven, they went to hell, in the way you feel right now, it would make almost no difference. If that's the case, there may be some bitterness in our hearts. As we close, I hope that you'll take a look at the, the back a little later, some things for you to read and questions and some things to think about as well. And I hope that you will pay attention to those, do those as a family. For tonight, we're not going to, a little differently tonight, we're not going to read our prayer requests and, and spend time in prayer. I'm going to ask Jack Ferguson if he would to come. He's headed back to college later this week. But you know that our church helped send him to Finland back in December, November into December as a missions trip, sort of a, a minor survey trip for him, if you would. He's been burdened about serving the Lord in missions around the world to a different group of people in a different place, a different language. And he was able to go before the service. We showed a little video, and, and we may figure out a way to share that with you again and let you see it, some of the pictures he took while he was there. And I've asked him, in, instead of our prayer time tonight, uh, he's going to share a little bit of a testimony with us about his time there and uh, the fruit of your sacrifice in, in being able to send him and be a part of that. Share just about my trip, and thank you so much for giving and praying. Um, I was able to go out to Finland and stay three weeks and work with the Whipplers uh, in Finland, their missionaries. They had just gotten there uh, in March, and so we stayed in what's called Vanta, which is where like the Helsinki airport is. Um, we were able to witness some people on the street. Uh, they had a cookie outreach. They're basically just starting their ministry in Finland. Um, on the way to Finland, actually, I had a layover in uh, London Heathrow, and I was just talking to people about Finland and where I was going, asking people where they were going. And this Finnish guy comes up to me, and he goes, hey, um, are you going to Finland? I said, yeah. And so we started talking about Finland, and um, we were waiting in security and just talking about the country, and he was telling me all about it. And we ended up having the same flight to Helsinki, um, and I was able to talk to him as we are walking through the airport. And he was able to, uh, he was like, so what do you all believe as Baptists? Like, what do you all believe? And so I was like sharing the gospel with him and, just what we believe that we believe scripture is our authority and the Holy Spirit shows us what we should do. Um, so that was really a blessing just to get to share that with him. And he's like, I'll, I'll consider that. Um, and then let's see what else did we do. We did street evangelism. Uh, so just walking around with tracks and giving them out to people, uh, inviting them to the Whipplers. Uh, they do like a Bible study on Sunday mornings in their house. Um, and they're working to try to develop a church there. Um, but there's, there was basically two or three people that are starting to come. Um, I was able to preach one Sunday uh, while I was there, just in their apartment, and we had two guests come that day, and they stayed for lunch. And it was good to just get to talk to the people, get to see where they're at. Uh, they have a lot of questions of, like, what's, what's right and wrong? Our country may say this is right or wrong to them, but... They're curious, what, what do y'all believe? Uh, that was a big question that they asked me. Um, I really enjoyed getting to try the food and just to get to see the country. Um, Corva Pusti is like a cinnamon roll that they had. Uh, you might see it on the video. Um, 
and the coffee was really good there too. I got to try the different types of coffee and they had lots of candy, uh, lots of chocolate. I was able to bring some of that back and some licorice. Um, also, let's see, uh, I was able to put together like a map uh, based upon five minutes on the public transportation because a lot of the people there use public transportation to get around in that Helsinki area. Uh, so I put together a map based upon bus stops five minutes apart uh, from where their apartment is just to get a general outreach idea of where the people are that they would want to reach for their church. Uh, so I was able to help them with that. And then they also uh, sent me over to Estonia and I was able to help some missionaries over there. Um, and it, it was hard to believe that you could go from like Helsinki, Finland to Estonia and basically two hours on a ferry. Uh, so that was pretty cool. It's only 49 miles. Uh, so I went down and worked with the Willoughby's uh, in, in Estonia and was able to do some outreach with them. And we were able to, um, I was able to help them set up for the services on Sunday. And then they had like a kids club on Sunday afternoon. And so that was pretty cool just to get to see how the different cultures are with sharing the gospel with people and how different people have church. Um, and there's such a need in that part of Europe just for people to hear the gospel, just to understand that God loves them. Um, Finland and Estonia are very similar, but they're very different. Um, in Finland, they're very regimented, like, this is what the rules are, and we're going to follow the rules. Whereas Estonia was, like, a little, a quite a bit different. Um, and their languages are very similar. It was, it was kind of funny coming back to the States, getting used to, like, you walk up to the counter to check out and not saying, moi, hi, or kitos, thank you. Or like walking through a crowd, even now I, I catch myself and I want to say, and taxi, excuse me. Because uh, it's like you'll be walking through just a busy crowd and it's just how you politely say, excuse me. Um, a couple prayer requests if I could share with y'all. Um, as far as with missions to Finland in the future, um, first off, I'd like to be able to finish college. Um, I really feel like God's led me to West Coast and I've really gotten good education so far from there um, and then secondly would be getting training here in the states after college to then be sent out as a missionary um, and then just being able to pay for college as I work and just try to save money to um, raise the funds to keep going and then a continued burden for the people there in Finland um, I was in one section called it's called Tulu uh, I probably probably butchering the pronunciation, but that area is just outside the five-minute perimeter of uh, where the whipplers are working, and they, the people definitely need the Lord there. Um, a couple other towns, Hamelina or Porvo uh, is another town in that area that, uh, in the general southern Finland section, that they definitely need the Lord. There's pretty much no Baptist churches there. Um, as far as I could find, there was only one church, uh, the church that sponsored the Whipplers, and that doctrinally agrees with what we uh, what we believe. Um, so definitely, if y'all could be praying for uh, those things, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to be a part of Sin and Jack this year, and. Um,
if the Lord continues to work in his heart and lead that way, I hope that our church will be a part of sending him for many more years. And um, whatever, the, however the Lord leads him. And so I'm, I'm always hesitant to declare something, you know, from the pulpit or publicly, because the Lord can work and change people's lives and hearts. But as long as God gives you the burden, we want to, we're your church and we want to support you. And uh, I'd love to be a part of sending him, whether it's being sent out of our church or bringing him back here for a while and training him some or help getting him in the places to, to train him. The Lord will have to lead him exactly where he wants to go and do all those things. But uh, that's my prayer is that the Lord will send people out of our church to the world and uh, see people come to the gospel through Christ. You have there on the back of your prayer sheet tonight some things, uh, not a lot of new updates per se, some members that have had some needs the last few weeks, and so I hope that you'll read through that and pray through that together as a church family. And uh, then with that, tomorrow, <clears throat> by way of announcement, tomorrow is our day of prayer or prayer vigil. We like to have one of these near the beginning of each year and uh, just pray about our church ministry, <clears throat> about what the Lord is doing here as a group, and then what God is doing in individual lives. And so there's a number of prayer requests that have been written down or sent in over the last uh, couple weeks, and we will have those scattered throughout the auditorium tomorrow from 7 in the morning until 7 at night. Uh, you can come and pray. There's no time requirement. It lends itself to pray for about an hour, and so if you want to come and uh, pray with a spouse or your friends or you bring your kids uh, a friend from within the church or whatever it may be, and um, come and be a part of that tomorrow. You can come anytime. There's no set time you have to be here, but at the beginning of each hour, uh, we will have a, a short time of prayer together with whoever's in the room at that time. And then it's very simple. It's just praying over those things. We have a list of requests about our church as a whole, and then we have these individual requests, people that are uh, seeking salvation for friends and neighbors, some people that are uh, going through health issues, others that just seeking the Lord's blessing in some ways in their lives. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that. If we believe that prayer is real, then we should pray. And God calls us sometimes to pray together. So I hope that you'll come and plan to be a part of that. Again, tomorrow, 7 in the morning is the first uh, hour that you can come and pray. And then the last one is start at 6 and then end at uh, 7 o'clock in the evening. So uh, the full day here together at the church. All right. Uh, let's be dismissed in prayer, and then I hope that you'll be back with us again on Sunday as we continue our study in uh, the book of Matthew. Then come back next week, uh, we get to the most dynamic moment, if you would, in the book of Esther, and it starts really leading us toward where we're headed in the next couple weeks. All right, let's be uh, dismissed in prayer. Uh, John Tinker, can you close us, and we'll be dismissed.